0: This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good evening, everyone. I trust that the Lord blessed you today. Amen? What a blessing it is to be at GYC. I know that the Lord has a blessing in store for each one of us, and I'm glad that I could be part of that blessing with you this evening. We are here to study the Word of God, and so I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me as we start with a brief word of prayer. Loving Father in heaven, We thank you, Lord, that we can come into your presence tonight with our Bibles in our hands, knowing that we serve a God who wants to speak to us. And Lord, that's all we ask for tonight. Send your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine with me tonight that everybody here in this room represents the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So all of us here this evening represent the over 19 million members of our church. Now what I want you to do is quickly look to the person on your left-hand side. Okay, good. Now look to the person on your right-hand side. Okay, great. Now look to the person next to the person on your left. Got that? Okay. According to a study that was done of over 18,000 Seventh-day Adventists, young people, Only one in the four of you in your group, yourself and the three other people that you just looked at, believe in a distinctive doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Only one in four of you would believe in that distinctive doctrine. According to this study, one in four Seventh-day Adventist young people believe in the doctrine of the investigative judgment. One in four Seventh-day Adventist young people, according to the study, believe in the distinctive doctrine of the investigative judgment. Now that's particularly alarming in light of some advice and counsel that we have from the pen of inspiration in the book Great Controversy, page Four hundred and eighty-eight, where the Sermon of the Lord says, The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly unter- understood by the people of God. What should be clearly understood? The understanding of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment. She goes on and she says this, All need a knowledge. How many need a knowledge? All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Yet, studies reveal only one in four Seventh-day Adventist young people believe in the doctrine of the investigative judgment. There is a loss of their identity. I'll be quick to say, though, that that many of these people probably have not cognitively or willingly rejected that doctrine, but most of them have probably not been educated on this wonderful truth. Perhaps they didn't learn it when they had their uh, baptismal class or their, their Sabbath school class or in class in school or something like that. They are not willingly ignorant i might say perhaps some of you here this evening know people who have left this great denomination because of this teaching maybe you are you yourself have grappled with its biblical significance in your own life and this evening i want to share with you that i believe unequivocally that the doctrine of the investigative judgment is biblical Where did this doctrine come from? Was it something that just was conjured up in the minds of early Advent believers in an attempt to cover over the, seemingly, the seeming mistake of the great disappointment of October 22, 1844? Where did this doctrine of the investigative judgment come from? Is it something that came from the pen of Ellen White and, and is a doctrine of hers? Where did, perhaps the reason why this has been rejected is because it is a doctrine of Ellen White and not a doctrine of God's Word. Again, I submit to you tonight from my personal study, and I'm not suggesting that you take my study as your study, but from my personal study, I believe unequivocally that the doctrine of the investigative judgment is biblical. Amen? Amen. There's no question about it in my mind. Coming in as fundamental belief number 24, the doctrine of the investigative judgment formed the foundation of our faith since the mid-1800s with the genesis of the term investigative judgment first being used in 1856 by an an Adventist evangelist by the name of Elon Everts. Shortly after that, about a month later, James White adopted the same term and it became a very uh, common theological expression that you and I are familiar with today, yet history reveals that the birth of this doctrine of the investigative judgment came out of much work. It was a long, laborious process, over 13 years of study and Bible study and prayer that finally led to the conclusion of what you and I believe today, according to Scripture to be the doctrine of the investigative judgment. Now, in order for this doctrine to exist, from a historical standpoint, there were four biblical facts that were discovered along the way. As the early Advent believers studied the Word of God, there were four biblical facts that they discovered in their journey that ultimately led to the conclusion of the investigative judgment you could kind of think of it like a like a car a car needs to have four wheels in order for it to be able to move in an appropriate dire- direction given that it has all of the other equipment the doctrine of the investigative judgment needed these four biblical facts to move it forward, if you will. And tonight I want to just uh, quickly go over these four biblical facts that have formed the foundation of the investigative judgment. The first biblical fact, for those of you that are taking notes, is the fact of the heavenly sanctuary in heaven. The day after the great disappointment of October 22, 1844... God began to give the early Advent believers an understanding of what had just taken place. Dear Jesus obviously did not come as they had expected Him to on October 22, 1844, which ultimately led to this great disappointment. Obviously, you know, the re- one of the reasons that led to the disappointment was the commonly held belief that the earth was the sanctuary and that on, uh, on October 22, 1844, Jesus would come and purify the earth by fire at his second appearing. However, the very next day after Jesus did not return, God came to a man who just the day before had wept and wept until the day dawned, and gave him a word of encouragement that helped lead the discouraged flock into what it is today. You've probably heard of this man. His name was Hiram Edson. And as Hiram Edson, on October 23, 1844, the day after, him and a friend of his, Owen Crozier, were walking through a cornfield on their way to go speak some words of encouragement to the disappointed flock. According to the history, as Edson was going through this cornfield, he was hit with the realization that the sanctuary and the cleansing of it wasn't the earth but it was the sanctuary in heaven. In fact, in Hiram own words, he says, the sanctuary I saw is in heaven. And Jesus entered yesterday upon the work of cleansing it. This was the first theological concept that would help form ultimately the doctrine of the investigative, ju- investigative judgment. This doctrine was fundamental, it was groundbreaking, it was ultimately a paradigm shift for the early Advent believers. For before this, they believed that the sanctuary was the earth, the paradigm shift from the earth to the sanctuary in the heavens. In a special sense we could actually say that the Seventh Day Adventist church was born in that cornfield. That's how fundamental this understanding of the heavenly sanctuary was. Biblical fact number 2 was the the teaching or the understanding of the two compartment ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. Sitting around a round table a couple of days after this experience in the cornfield, Hiram Edson, Owen Crozier, and another friend by the name of Dr. F.B. Hahn were there with their Bibles open, two copies of the Crudence Concordance, and a, and a mess of Millerite material as they began to pour themselves over the study of God's Word to get a better understanding of this newfound belief or this newfound understanding of the sanctuary being the sanctuary in heaven. As they poured themselves over scripture, they came over some fascinating passages such as Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 9. And as they began to go through these Bible passages, prayerfully studying them, gaining a deeper understanding of this sanctuary in heaven, they began to understand that if they wanted to understand what Jesus was doing in the heavenly sanctuary, they needed to go back and look at what would happen in the earthly sanctuary. For the earthly was a reflection of the heavenly. As they began to read the books of Moses, it did not take them long, these three lay Bible scholars, to come to the understanding that with the, earthly, or with, the, with the earthly sanctuary, there was two compartments in the sanctuary, the holy and the most holy. Of course, it was the court place too. But the holy and the most holy. Pl- and in the holy place and the most holy place, there were two services, the daily and the yearly And as they began to delve into the daily and the yearly service and what the significance of those two services were, it began to give them a broader understanding of the ministry of Jesus in heaven. Because as Seventh-day Adventists, we know what Jesus is doing in heaven. Would you say amen? So as they studied their Bibles, they came to the realization that from the ascension of Jesus to October 22, 1844, Jesus was doing his work in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, doing the work of forgiveness. But on October 22, 1844, he shifted his ministry from the holy to the most holy and began this work of purification of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, this was a significant finding for if you understand that many evangelical churches, they mainly focus on not the the ministry that we understand, but rather what Jesus has done in the court place. Now, we we believe that in the sacrifice of Jesus, we understand the significance of the cross and what happened there. But many evangelicals stop there. But Seventh-day Adventists, who are biblical, follow Jesus from the courtyard into the holy place. And then they followed Jesus from the holy place into the most holy place. Would you say amen? Amen. So as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a broader understanding of the ministry of Jesus, praise the Lord, based off of the study of these godly men. So the first biblical fact that they learned was the understanding of the heavenly sanctuary. The second biblical fact was the understanding of the two-phased ministry in the holy and the most holy. The third third biblical fact that they came to, or the third biblical fact that they gained an understanding of, was the understanding of the blotting out of sins. The blotting out of sins. In February of 1846, Owen Crozier was approached by his two friends, F.B. Hahn and Hiram Edson. Owen was a gifted writer And so they asked him, listen, we've been studying the Bible for quite some time. We've gained a deep understanding and now it's time to write this stuff out and to get it out there. So they asked Owen to begin to write down their findings in an article that would be published in a small publication called The Day Star. And Owen Crozier took their uh, advice And he wrote this article out. Now, it's a lengthy article. We don't have time to go into all that. You can go back and dig it up in your study. And it's well worth your read. But in that article, he made a fascinating connection between the earthly sanctuary's two-phase ministry in the holy and the most holy, and that connection and application to what hap- what is happening in the heavenly sanctuary. And this is what Owen Crozier said in his article in the Day Star. He said the atonement which the priest made for the people in connection with the daily ministration was different. From that made on the tenth day of the seventh month, or on the Day of Atonement. The first, or the daily service, was made for the forgiveness of sins. The second, or the later, for the blotting of them out. So Owen came to this connection that the first phase ministry of Jesus in the holy place was the, was the ministry of forgiving people of their sins. But when Jesus moved from the holy into the most holy, he began the work of blotting sins out, of cleansing the sanctuary of sin. That was a pivotal understanding in the development of the investigative investigative judgment doctrine. Now, it, it so happened that it appears like Ellen White was either on their mailing list or somehow she got a copy of Crozier's article. And when she read it, the historical account is that she was thrilled by what she heard Crozier say. She was excited as she read the writing of Crozier. It confirmed, it was, or rather her visions that she received confirmed Crozier's findings that he wrote about the heavenly sanctuary. Now, it's important to note here that Owen Crozier, F.B. Hahn, and Hiram Edson did not know about Ellen White's visions at this point. At this point, it was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears pouring over the Bible, pouring over the Crudence Concordance, and obviously spending a lot of time in prayer. Later, after Ellen White read this article by Crozier, this is what she said. In Word to the Little Flock, page 12, she said, The Lord showed me in vision that Brother Crozier had the true light. What did he have? Does God lead his people in the study of his word? Come on now. Does God lead his people in the study of his word? Amen. The Lord showed me in vision that brother Crozier had the true light on the cleansing of the sanctuary and that it was his will, God's will that Brother C, or Brother Crozier, should write out the view which he gave us in the day star extra of February 7th, 1846. Listen to this. Ellen White says, I feel fully authorized by the Lord to recommend that extra to every saint. Full, endor- <clears throat> full endorsement of what... Uh, Crozier wrote in that article. Now, the doctrine of the blotting out of sins in the heavenly sanctuary was another truth. It was one of the four truths that led to the ultimate conclusion of the investigative, investigative judgment. But it wasn't... At this point, they still did not quite connect their findings with the judgment. The Lord was still leading them. The Lord was still guiding them in their study of of, of the word of God. But they still had not made that connection. In fact, it wasn't for another seven years until they finally made the definitive connection with what they had studied being connected with the judgment. In fact, it's interesting. In 1845 history shows that William Miller actually made the connection. But most of the early Advent believers missed that connection. It wasn't until years later that J.N. Loughborough, the great historian, made the connection, and this was the connection... Two key passages that we understand as Seventh-day Adventists. In fact, you've got them rooted and grounded in your long-term memory. You and I, as, 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 as Adventists today, we take it for granted, the knowledge that we have in our mind. But that knowledge that we have today came out of many hours of Bible study and prayer. And we should treasure the knowledge that we have. Amen. That was a week. Amen. amen. Come on now. Amen? amen. Two Bible passages. This is, this, is, this, is, this is the two Bible passages. D- Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. Unto 2,300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. See, you've got it in there. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7. The hour of his... What? Is come. It took... Years for the early Advent believers to make the connection that the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8 and verse 14 and the hour of God's judgment in Revelation 14 and verse 7 is talking about the same exact event. Took years of Bible study. The fourth uh, biblical fact was the fact of the judgment. And when they finally had all of these pieces and these ingredients put together they were able to come to the conclusion that on October 22, 1844, Jesus entered in to the work of the investigative judgment. It was a long process that led to this conclusion. This brief analysis of the history of the development of this doctrine, I don't want you to miss this point, came out of much Bible study and prayer. Where did it come from? much Bible study. Years of Bible study and prayer. Pouring themselves over Scripture. Listen, Today, we are lazy when it comes to studying God's Word. These brothers and sisters back in the day, they would spend countless hours and they didn't have the fancy equipment that we have today. They didn't have a a computer. They They weren't able to do a word search and all that kind of stuff. All they had was the Bible and the Crudence Concordance and the Holy Spirit. And that's all you need to study God's Word. Come on now. I don't want you to miss this point. The doctrine of the investigative judgment was birthed out of Bible study. The doctrine of the investigative judgment, if you forget everything that I've said this evening, don't forget this. The doctrine of the investigative judgment is not a doctrine of Ellen G. White. Ellen White teaches it, Ellen White writes about it, and Ellen White believed in it, but it was not a doctrine of Ellen White. The doctrine of the investigative judgment is a doctrine of scripture. And tonight I submit to you again that this doctrine is 100% biblical. And if anybody tells you that it is a doctrine of Ellen White, they are misinformed and they are leading you in the wrong direction. And that is not the spirit that we want to follow as God's people. Now, tonight, I want to take just a few moments to quickly share with you from Scripture how this doctrine is biblical. And for that, I want you to quickly turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Again, this is another passage that we have rooted in our minds, in our long term memory. The Bible says this Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You cannot miss the connection with the first angel's message there. Verse 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment. With every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Will there come a time that God will judge, yes or no? You can't deny it. Scripture says that God is going to judge our works. Whether they're good or whether they're evil, they will be brought into this time of judgment. There is no question about it that the Bible teaches A judgment that is to come. And by virtue of a judgment, there must exist an investigation. Have you ever heard of a court case that had no investigation? By its very existence, the concept of a judgment, by its very existence, there is an investigation into the evidence so that a decision can be made. So when the Bible introduces this idea of a judgment, it's already assumed that there's going to be an investigation into the evidence, and Solomon tells us what the evidence is, the good and the bad works. I want to pose to you two questions tonight, and I'm going to do my best to answer them in the time that I have. Two questions. When When does the investigative judgment take place? And who is the investigative judgment for? For the first one, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, the book of Daniel. Daniel, the seventh chapter. The case for a pre-advent investigative judgment is anchored in our chronological understanding of the book of Daniel. You can't get around it. You have to have the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel just reveals to us this, 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 this when it happens and how it happens. Now as you're turning there, you you know that Daniel chapter 7, the the first part of it we're very familiar with, you've heard it in evangelistic series multiple times, you have the succession of earthly kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, division of, of Europe, and then the papacy. But it's what happens after that that oftentimes is not really elaborated on. And that's where we want to take a look at in our study tonight. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, this is the part that's of interest to us tonight. Daniel says this. I beheld till thrones were cast down, some translations say put in place, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued <clears throat> and came forth before him. from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the what? books were open. Now notice what it says in verse 13. And I saw in the night vision and behold one like unto the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. In Daniel chapter 7, there is a sequence that is repeated 3 times. And if you're not familiar with the terminology and what's going on there, you might miss that sequence. And that sequence is critical to understand, to the understanding of the investigative judgment. The sequence that is repeated three times is this. Fourth beast, ten horns, little horn, judgment. Fourth beast, ten horns, little horn, judgment. Fourth beast, ten horns, little horn, judgment. Did you catch it? Yes or no? That sequence is repeated. Three times in Daniel chapter 7. You you have to go. Don't take my word for it. Go back and check it out for yourself. It is there. Three times Daniel goes through that. And he does it for a reason. Because he's trying to help us see in point of time when the investigative judgment or when this judgment that he talks about would take place. And according to Daniel's sequence, the judgment in heaven would take place after What? After the little horn. Did you catch the sequence? Fourth beast, ten horns, little horn, judgment. So the judgment according to Daniel, according to the sequence, would happen sometime after the arise of the little horn. But the great thing is, is Daniel doesn't just leave us hanging there. He gives us more information. He he hedges it in a little bit more for us so that we can better identify when this thing would happen. And that happens in the third sequence In uh, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 26, this is what Daniel says. He says, but the judgment shall sit. The judgment, what? Will sit. And they shall take away his or the little horn, the Antichrist's dominion, to consume and to destroy it unto the end. So now what Daniel does is he says, listen, not only is the judgment happening after the arise of the little horn, But now he tells us that it's going to happen before its demise. So he says the judgment happens after the arise of the little horn, but before its demise. Did you catch that? Happens before the arise of the little horn, or after the arise of the little horn, but before its demise. Now, according to Paul's writings in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul tells us, when it is that the little horn will be destroyed. Notice this just jot it down in your notes really quickly here. 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8 the bible says this, and then shall that wicked or the man of sin, the antichrist be revealed, whom the lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy, finish it for me, with the brightness of his coming. What do we call his coming? The second coming. So, Paul really narrows it down for us, and as we compare these two passages of Daniel 7 and Paul's writings in 2 Thessalonians, we conclude that the judgment in Daniel 7 would happen after the arise of the Antichrist, but before the second coming of Jesus. Therefore, the judgment in Daniel 7 is a pre advent judgment. Come on in, somebody say amen. amen. Listen, we don't follow cunningly devised fables. We don't listen to the teachings of men. If you don't understand this, Ellen White tells us everybody should have a clear understanding of the investigative investigative judgment. And if you don't have a good understanding of it, I appeal to you tonight, when you get home, make it your study. Because this is what's going on in heaven right now. I don't want you to miss something here in Daniel 7. It's quick, it's easy to go over it. But the other thing that Daniel mentions here is that there will be books that will be opened. Everything that that anybody has ever said or done will be reviewed in this time of great judgment. And that should give you some pause to think about as you are reflecting upon the study here this evening. Now, as I've mentioned tonight, we've seen in Daniel 7 that the judgment happens after the rise of the Antichrist but before the second coming. But it's in Daniel chapter 8 that we're really able to pinpoint when this thing happens. And I've got a chart. They're going to flash it up on the screen here for you tonight. You can take a picture of it with your smartphone and go back and study it. Listen, we need to be Bereans here and go back and study this stuff for ourselves. Not just because some presenter at GYC has said these things. We need to have this in our own cell, in our own minds, understand it. But as you compare Daniel 7 with Daniel 8, you will find that again, Daniel is following the same sequence of events that he already talked about in Daniel chapter 7. He's repeating it again in Daniel chapter 8. He's doing this method of what we call repeat and enlarge. He repeats what he said and then he enlarges upon it in Daniel chapter 8. So what we find is that in Daniel chapter 7, there's the lion, the bear, the leopard, the dragon, the ten horns, the little horn, and then the judgment. In Daniel chapter 8, you have the ram, the goat, the little horn, or Rome, and then the little horn again, which is the papacy, and then the cleansing of the sanctuary. As you compare these two chapters, and you've got to go at this yourself and hammer it out so that it's clear in your mind, but as you compare these two chapters, what you find is that the judgment in Daniel chapter 7, in heaven, is the same as the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel chapter. It's the same thing. And from that, we can pinpoint when when that judgment would take place. And we don't have time to go into that tonight, but there are lots of great Bible studies that you can take or that you can look at that go through the 2300 days. I must hasten on. The second question I wanted to pose to you tonight is this Who is the pre Advent judgment for? Who is the pre Advent investigative judgment for? Critics of the investigative judgment will say this there's no need for the investigative judgment because God knows everything. God is omniscient, He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all the decisions that people are going to make. Who's the going to be saved and who's going to be lost? If God is omniscient, why, does there, why is there a need for an investigative judgment? What's the point of it anyways? Now, I don't think any Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventist would argue with the fact that God is omniscient. God does know everything. So what is it for? What's the purpose of the investigative judgment? Now, there is a number of texts we could go to, but we're already in Daniel 7, and, and I just want to use what we've already looked at to answer this question. As we look at the judgment in Daniel chapter 7, we find that there are, the Bible describes who is there. We have the Ancient of Days, God the Father himself. We have the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who is there. And then we have this 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 great throng of heavenly beings, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, we already know God is omniscient. We already know that Jesus is omniscient. But I'm here to tell you this evening that the angels are not. The angels are not omniscient. And during the investigative judgment, God is revealing to them why he made the decisions that he made. He's showing them the records of why he has chosen certain individuals uh, to be saved based on the evidence, not arbitrarily, but based on their evidence, and why others have been lost. And this is why we have statements like this in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5 where the Bible says, and he he that overcometh. The same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Listen to this. But I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. Luke chapter 12 and verse 8, Jesus says this, also I say unto you, whatsoever whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. The investigative judgment does not decide who will be saved or who will be lost. The investigative judgment reveals why God made the decisions that He made. Listen to me carefully. God has to show these heavenly beings that there is a group of people in Houston, Texas, who have been so thoroughly transformed into His image that although they at one point were infected with sin, they have so much the atmosphere of heaven in them that they are safe to bring into the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Right. Amen. God has to show... Listen, the angels are not interested in seeing Lucifer's story repeated again. Amen. And they want to see us saved just as much as God wants to see us saved. But God wants to, wants them to be convinced. That yes, there are young people in Houston, Texas, who are so serious and dedicated to God that they are like Enoch. They walk with God day after day. They live in the presence of God. They live for Him. They breathe for Him. They work for Him. Everything in their life is revolving around God and His soon coming. And God wants to show the angels that these people are safe to take into heaven with Without tarnishing the atmosphere of heaven, the question is, will I be one of them? The decision on behalf of the dead has already taken place. When a man dies, his destiny is already decided. But for those of us that are still alive, that destiny is yet to be made. It's unequivocal. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31 that God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world. And that includes you. And that includes me. God has appointed a time in which he will judge the world. And Peter brings it home even more. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 he says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, rich, pre, fr- rich poor, free, bon- everybody who's ever existed in this world who has professed the name of Jesus is the house of God. And the Bible tells us that judgment will start with them. God reached back into the recesses of history and started with the very first man at the, uh, at the beginning of the investigative judgment in October 22, 1844. And since then, it has progressed through time and we know not when it will switch from the judgment of the dead to the judgment of the living. And that, my young friends, should give you pause in your life. It was 1821. <clears throat> There's a young man by the name of Charles who landed a job in a law office. He wanted to be a lawyer, so he was getting training how to do that. And one morning, Charles was in this law office before anybody arrived for work that day. He was there alone, sorting out his papers. And as he was sitting there in the quietness of his office, the Lord started speaking to him and asking him some questions. Charles, what are you gonna do after your training? What are you gonna do after your schooling? He said, well I suppose I'll start my own law office and start practicing law. And then what? Well I suppose I'll make a lot of money and get rich. And then what? Well, I guess I'll, I'll retire and en- enjoy my wealth. Sounds like today's society, doesn't it? And then what? Well, I suppose I'll die. And then what? And it hit him like a lightning bolt. And then, the judgment. Instantly, Text flashed through his mind from his childhood that God has appointed, uh, uh, that it is appointed unto man once to die and afterwards the judgment. Instantly, Charles leapt out of his chair. He ran out of the front door of his law office and he ran down the road for a half a mile until he found a grove of trees. And there he went into that grove of trees and he headed out with God. He knelt down on his knees and he was determined that he would not leave until he had peace with his Creator. After the long struggle, that evening, Charles found that peace, surrendered his will to God. He came out of that grove of trees a different man, not ambitious after worldly fame and wealth and prosperity, but ambitious to be a servant of God. Charles went into that grove a lawyer. After a day of prayer and wrestling with God, he came out of that grove, the mighty evangelist and revivalist who served the Lord for 50 years, Charles Finney, leading untold multitudes of people to the Lord and to, the, and, to, and to Jesus to give their hearts to Him. He went into that grove a lawyer. He came out of that grove a worker for God. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you tonight, you might do well to go into a grove of woods and have it out with the Lord for a day in prayer. God might change the entire trajectory of your life. You might think you're going in this direction, and God says, "Nah, I don't want you to go that direction. This is the way I want you to go. Yeah, you want to get wealthy. You want your education. You want all the fame, all the popularity, all that kind of stuff. Yes, you want that, but I have something better for you. Yes, you want wealth here on this earth, but I want you to lay up treasures in heaven where moth does not corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. You might do well to have it out with the Lord in the grove of wood sometime because He might change the course of your life. Your life may never be the same. Maybe when you think about the judgment you tremble at the thought that everything that I've ever done everything that I've ever said everything that I've ever thought is documented in heaven. We don't like to feel uncomfortable. And so we tend to push these kinds of thoughts out of our mind. And we keep ourselves busy doing other things, even ministry. As long as we can soothe that mind. But I want to take you over tonight and the next two nights, and I want you to look right into the investigative judgment. The Bible tells us about a man who, when he heard about the judgment, he trembled. You've heard about him. Paul, in the book of Acts, was standing before this mighty man, Felix. And the Bible tells us in Acts 24, verse 25, that as Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. Now, here's the amazing thing to me about this Bible passage. Felix trembled at the thought of a future judgment. Yet you and I today are living in the hour of God's judgment. It is not future anymore. It is current, and we would do well to think about that. Trembled, the Bible says. And he told Paul, he said, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Inspiration tells us in the book Acts the Apostles that Felix never was to receive another call from God. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, but we do have right now and God is wanting to reach into the depths of your heart and get you ready for his soon coming. He wants to change your life so that it is a reflection of Him. Today right now as we speak in the kingdom of heaven names are being accepted and names are being rejected. Is it a reality to you That one day in the heavenly court, there there will be some angelic being who will pick up the books of record and they will leaf through the pages that are written about you. That one day, some angelic being, some heavenly messenger will form on their lips the name of you. That your name will reverberate through the courts of heaven. How will it be when your name rings through the courts of heaven? What will be seen? What will be heard? What will be observed about your life that you have created? This has to become a reality to us. This is not a future thing, brothers and sisters. This is not something that we've got time to gamble with. The time is running short. Jesus wants to finish this thing up and he wants to use you to help finish it. So I ask you tonight, or maybe rather we can say this, maybe as you have listened to the message, you realize that you are not ready for the investigative judgment as you think about all of its ramifications and and what is going to happen, you are not, you feel in your heart, I am not ready for the investigative judgment, but you want to be. Have it out with the Lord in prayer. God, what is your will for my life? I want this way, but I want your way. What is your will for me? Don't follow Felix's example and wait for a more convenient season. The devil is happy when you put things to the side and say, I'll do it later. Because he knows that later never comes. The more we put it off, the more we push it away, the less that conviction is there. Tonight, you're saying, I'm not ready for the investigative judgment. I know that. In the depth of my heart, I know I'm not ready for it. Listen, as I prepared these messages, I had to get on my knees and weep at the feet of Jesus. I would go on long walks in my prayer time and say, Father, I can't do this. This is too big. The stakes are too high. Have it out with God in prayer. Tonight you're saying in the depths of your heart, I'm not ready for it. But by God's strength, I'm willing to let him do whatever it takes to prepare me for it. Is that fair? If that's your desire, I'm going to ask you to stand tonight with me. Just let the Lord know. If it's not your desire, don't stand up. Don't, don't just do this because everybody else is doing it. But you're saying tonight before God, before the heavenly intelligences, and before the fellow attendees here at GYC, I want to be ready when the courts of heaven ring with my name. I want the angels to look at the books of record and see that I have the character of God in my life, that I've been transformed into His image. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh God, my heart is heavy, for the work is great. Not only is there a work without, There's a great work that needs to be done within. And, O Lord, tonight we stand before you on our feet, not because we can, but because we recognize that in our humanness we're not ready. But, Lord, deep in in our hearts we have a passionate desire to be ready and father if that means we need to find a quiet place and clear our schedule for a day to weep at the feet of Jesus and ask for peace may that be the case and may we be willing to make whatever sacrifice it may, may need to be made to achieve that oh lord help us but we cannot do it on our own. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing and answering this prayer. For we pray it in the almighty and all-powerful name of Jesus. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 Conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.